the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thank you for joining us on this Thursday afternoon today. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Online at 1160hope.com. There you can find old shows. Uh, we talked about this yesterday. Ian did a lot of great shows while I was gone. Almost intimidating good shows. <laughs> I take zero credit for that. I think that's that's all the guests. It's the best sign of a host right there, man. Oh, like well, Just bringing them through. I'll take that. I, I was just, like, I, I got to get back. I'm going to lose my role. He actually cut his vacation short by two weeks. He's getting antsy. Oh, it's good. It's good. You can also text us at 68683. That's 68683. Type in CG followed by your comment. Uh, hey, man, I've been back now a couple of days from California. I am still struggling to wake up. I feel like I've now entered into your world where you always tell people I'm tired. Like whenever, how you doing? I'm tired. I've got it for like a week. Like I feel I'm starting to feel a little bit of compassion towards you. I think. Do you, do you get, you're starting to starting. feel yep. a little bit of compassion. We've been doing this show together since January. That's right. And today you're starting to begin to feel a little bit of compassion. And it's only because I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, let's let's dive into the deep sea of that psychology sometime. No, I am fully narcissistic and self-centered. You I also get it. can't be jet lagged from being on the West Coast. It's not like you were in Japan. I know I'm weak that way. <laughs> it is like my daughter is still like, Dad, it's like this in California. I'm like we've been back for a couple of days now. We're good, but we should be okay. But now I'm the one saying I'm not okay. No. So. It's okay to not be anyway, okay, Brian. What's fun to do as a radio show is you've taught us over the last couple of months when you're tired and just a little sleep deprived. Like that's that's <laughs> the really fun preaching thing, so. sleep deprived. That's maybe the most scary. I think because yeah. it's like, oh boy, I am not totally here right now. I guess it packs. I guess people are like, oh, we got to go today. Ian's tired. <laughs> yeah. Anytime I, I remember preaching once a couple months ago, and I was like really tired and feeling really sick, and so I was like, hey everybody, I'm on a lot of cough syrup right now. So this is either going to be terrible or hilarious. <laughs> but either way, either I way it. have your cell phones ready, right? <laughs> oh, that's really funny. So anyway, uh, one thing we like to do is you and I just kind of throw um, articles at each other uh, online, not at literally at we each other. I like to throw them. We throw them yeah. at each other. We just things we find interesting. Uh, and this is one you sent our way. It's called this, uh, the Christian addiction to control. And then parenthetically, and how to maybe stay fr- free from it. The Christian addiction to control. And I think it struck us both, especially as pastors, as something uh, interesting. I've never thought of a, of control as an addiction. So uh, why don't you fill this out for us a little bit? What are they talking about? So it starts uh, saying this. I've seen it too many times. The church wants others to do less blank 
and more blank. Mm. And you could probably fill in your own blanks, right? Less, you know, drinking, cursing, fornicating, more praying, more tithing, more serving. And mostly in that specific church, not anywhere else. And it says, but we have to ask ourselves, do we want them to start, stop doing these things for their benefit or ours? I think we have confused salvation with behavior management mm. and traded the good news for good advice, which is really um, convicting because you and I are both pastors. And I think one of the things that can be really challenging is that even maybe silently, if, if we, if we imagine a community, a family where grace really is at the forefront, mm. I think sometimes the, the quiet voice, sometimes that can get a little bit louder in, in certain seasons is that like, well, you can't be that gracious. Yeah. You can't be that forgiving, right? It'd be chaos. It'd be, and I've heard other pastors say like, man, if you really just love people right where they're at, well then gosh, what kind of church would that end up looking like? And I think sometimes in the, in the name of uh, wisdom or in the name of healthy management skills, I think sometimes we can sort of choke out some of what the transformative power of the gospel is meant to do in our lives. Mm. And, uh, and I think, I don't think it's just pastors that feel this. I think yeah. this honestly is, is oftentimes what a lot of the uh, internal complaints can be, but like that question of, are we preaching good news or just good advice? And sometimes good advice, the thing behind the thing when you're talking about good advice is we want you to behave differently, which right. doesn't mean that we don't necessarily at some point want people to behave differently, but it's because what they're doing maybe is toxic or it's divisive, not, yes. not starting with that. And I think that's uh, getting that order out of whack can be really problematic. That's really good. I remember when I started preaching more regularly, uh, a good mentor of mine, he used the phrase, and he didn't come up with this, this is a well-known phrase, but the phrase behavior modification, that right. oftentimes we preach for behavior modification. I think we do that for a couple different reasons. One is uh, it's easier to measure, right? <laughs> like, yeah, right. oh yeah, no, my people are doing this or are doing that. Uh, but two, Grace, like you said, and the gospel and everything is just so messy. And so uh, behavior modification gives helps us get our arms around things a little bit better. The truth of the matter is behavior is important. Behavior changing over time is important. Uh, the difficulty is it's just a fruit of somebody uh, uh, understanding the gospel more and more. As I grasp what Jesus is doing in my life, and as the Holy Spirit is sanctifying me and at work in my life, then my my behavior begins to uh, modify. It begins right. to change. It becomes to be more Christ-like. Instead, you know, we like to throw the bracelet on that says, what would Jesus do? And like, you just need to act better and be better. Right. And we reverse those. And I think calling it an addiction to control uh, is a convicting and an interesting way to look at it. Well, and he, he talks about control being something that we want, not something that we need. And I think even identifying that he uses this uh, this quote from Danny Silk, who said, powerful people do not try to control other people. They know it doesn't work and that it's not their job. Their job is to control themselves. And mm. I just think it's a really it's a really convicting article. Uh, and I don't know that it, you feel this kind of control freak pull in you as much. I certainly do. And it's something it's an it's a really ugly part of, I think, some of my wiring mm. uh, to just be sometimes maybe too involved and some of the things beneath that are like, okay, so I don't really believe that they can do as good a job yeah, or is that, a, yeah. you know, that, that, that can be even in terms of team management can be really struggling, but it ends with this, this prayer. Um, it says, God, keep my anger from becoming meanness. Keep my sorrow from collapsing into self pity. Keep my heart soft enough to keep breaking. Keep my anger mm. turned towards justice, not cruelty. Remind me that all of this, every bit of it is for love. Keep me fiercely kind.
Hmm. Amen. Yeah. Fiercely kind is like such a compelling idea to me because I feel like so often kindness actually is seen as weakness and the people at the, you know, quote unquote top of most hierarchical structures tend to probably, I imagine, be pretty controlling. And right. so there's something in us that says, like, well, that worked for them. <laughs> yeah. But to really hold that up and see that through the lens of Jesus and say that that's not the way that we're called to live. Yeah. And I think the lens of Jesus is an interesting way to talk about it. Uh, the author here writes that Jesus never controlled Peter's, Peter's stubbornness or Thomas's doubt, not even Judas's betrayal. Yeah, and, right. And that's a very interesting thought. Like, what well, Jesus didn't sit down and be like, hey, Peter, we've got to round out these edges on you here before I send you out. And we've got to, it would have made his life a lot easier <laughs> if he had. Yeah. Right. Uh, but instead Jesus uh, just keeps revealing who he is. And over time there becomes change. And sometimes, you know, over time it didn't work for, you know, Judas still betrayed him. Yes. And so, uh, yeah, you ask, you said, I don't know if I'm a, you said you're a controlling person. You don't know about me. I feel like I'm growing to become more controlling. Oh, really? Yeah, I do. And 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 so that's why this article struck me is like, I, I do feel an increasing pull towards wanting to con- micromanage things in my right. church, micromanage right. things in my family. And that's a really hard struggle. Well, and I think it is worth remembering too, that controlling others is not a fruit of the spirit. Self-control is, oh, that's really you know, good, and man. I think that we often get that order out of whack yeah. and that uh, at the heart of love doesn't mean that we don't call people on their garbage and say, hey, man, you're, what you're doing right now is destructive. I'm not saying at all that we don't actually have to go toe to toe with people sometimes right. and say, hey, this is just bad news for you. Um, but to start with the posture of love and grace is sounds really, really great and is way harder to do. Absolutely. Well, that's uh, we would love to hear your feedback on this. What is what are control issues? What are what do you do? You struggle with something like this. You can do that at Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. You can always text us at six, eight, six, eight. Three. Well, coming up next, we're going to uh, tackle a hard subject that's been all over the news. That's of uh, the immigrants and the migrants. And what is the Christian response to that? We're going to discuss that next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. This music makes me want to talk slower. Yeah, just do it for the whole segment. <laughs> just draw it all out. We're gonna get, we're gonna get four minutes of content <laughs> into nine and a half minutes. Just yeah, it is funny when you hear the music; it immediately gets your mood for the segment going. That's like, okay. true. I, we probably should think more intently about that. Uh, you think very intently about our music. Me, I'm like just like no, okay. whatever. <laughs> your voice does get very high when you talk about music. Hey, music. <laughs> What is this? Guilty as charged. It's actually, very, it's actually sounding more and more Seinfeld. The more yeah, the day. Hey, hey, what's the deal what? with music? <laughs> That's a bullseye Seinfeld impression. <laughs> Boy. Oh, anyway, that's good stuff. Uh, USA Today, Brian McLaren wrote an article, and I don't know your thoughts on Brian McLaren. Like, sometimes you read the author and you're like, nope, I'm going to disagree with this, or yes, I'm going to agree with this. That's and, called uh, confirmation bias. It's absolutely <laughs> true. But when I was reading this, all of a sudden I was like, I wonder who wrote this. I'm like, oh, it's Brian McLaren. <laughs> so, In a good way? I still can't tell how you feel about him. I just remember, uh, so uh, I what was his first book? Um Christian Orthodoxy, not his first book. First book I read, Generous, Generous Orthodoxy. Orthodoxy, yeah. And I don't know if it was a season of life or whatever. I just did not agree with the book very much. I oh, was man. young too, yeah, and so right. I, don't, I I might agree with it more if I read it now or less. I don't know, but 
Uh, so ever since then, you ever read a book by someone you're like, I don't agree with this or I didn't like that. And all of a sudden it clouds everything else about them. Anyway, yeah, I get that. I get that confirmation bias. As you said, <laughs> it's not a good thing. Uh, uh, Brian McLaren wrote uh, an, an, an opinion piece for the USA Today, and it's titled this. Is it Christian or illegal to aid migrants? A hung Tucson jury, a fork in the road of faith. And so he starts this way. What does religious liberty mean? Prison for being a good Samaritan or refugees? The hung jury in the Scott Warren trial leaves the question to us. And then he he's going to unpack this whole thing about uh, migrants and how Christians are to act and follow laws and all this stuff. So I'm curious your uh, if you could tell us what's he talking about a little bit, uh, and then we're going to jump uh, into the deep waters of just kind of what we think about this. <laughs> well, all right. So he sets it up in a pretty interesting way, and he's talking about the, the parable of the Good Samaritan in sort of modern language, which the you know, the parable, even the title of the parable uh, sh- sort of shows, shows its conclusion, right? The, oh, the parable of the Good Samaritan to imply like most of them are awful. Here's a parable of one good one. But the, there's some interesting nuance to that because there actually was a, a previous parable prior to Jesus teaching this where the end of the story where the person that actually showed mercy on him was this average everyday Jew. That's how the story mm-hmm. would go. Mm-hmm. So for Jesus to kind of round the corner and say it was a Samaritan man would have been really scandalizing because this expert in the law is asking Jesus this question, trying to really drill down to some of the nitty gritty, like who was who my neighbor? And so Jesus, as he often does, uh, instead of answering the question, he tells a story. He gives a parable, which is such a unique, interesting apologetic. But uh, it is fascinating because he tells this whole story and then he goes back to the person that asked him, you know, at at the beginning of the story, what, you know, who's my neighbor? And uh, he says the one who showed mercy on him, Mm -hmm. which he he can't even I imagine he has a hard time even saying the the word Samaritan. Like, yeah, he has so much animosity for who Jesus makes this hero of the story to be that it like shows all the layers of it's kind of like Jesus saying like the expert in the law asks, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus is saying, who do you hate right now? Hmm. Who do do you really struggle to love? Who do you fear? Who do you like? He's kind of getting at the heart of why this person's asking in the first place. So McLaren is bringing this uh, full circle to a pretty front and center conversation about uh, migrants and and again, just to say this, I think they're really, really smart people on all sides of this debate. Um, I do think when it comes to like some of the mistreatment of children, there are not a lot of sides to mm-hmm. that that I'm okay entertaining. Like the mistreatment of children, period, is uh, just really, really problematic for me, regardless of your politics and regardless of your theology. But I think he he's making an interesting um, proposition for us to consider how we are to interact with uh, this growing issue of migration. Yeah, and... I, I like what you said there at first, uh, and that's, yeah, there there are ways to debate this, and, and we can jump into it a little bit about what, you, what uh, the laws should be and all this stuff. What is not debatable, I would say, is the breaking of somebody's heart over uh, the suffering of children. And, and as you're reading these stories or seeing these stories on, on news shows and stuff, the stories of, of of children being pulled from parents and this and that. And again, immigration is a complex issue uh, that as the phrase you and I like to use is uh, it's kind of above our pay grade, right? Like, yeah. uh, but man, I get so sad when I see the stories of kids like uh, being, you know, in, in detention centers or whatever else. Um, and, and so what McLaren is asking is uh, what is the Christian's role when you see the vulnerable uh 
being um, uh, struggling? Is it our role to always follow law or is it our role to show kindness and jump in where we need to jump in? And should that be the flag that we're carrying when it comes to religious freedom? Like, hey, my faith in Jesus means I have to go care for the less fortunate or this, even if the laws of the country say you cannot. And that's what this trial is of Scott Warren. He was a volunteer with the humanitarian humanitarian aid group called No More Death. Uh, He faced a lengthy federal prison sentence for what McLaren says, quote, doing likewise. Um, And it says uh, there ended up being a hung jury in his trial. He was facing 20 years uh, because he, uh, upon meeting two men, uh, who said they were cold, tired, hungry, and thirsty. He offered food and water and a place to rest. For this, he was arrested and charged with harboring illegal aliens and conspiracy to transport them with a penalty of up to 20 years. Uh, and and he was there was a hung jury. So he was neither uh, convicted nor let off. And uh, uh, McLaren uses this to say this. Jurors undecided on whether or not moral decency is a punishable offense. Like the famous parable, the trial left an open question for each of us to decide. And man, you read the article and you're just like, ah, I don't know. Like, it feels like he did the right thing, even though it was technically against the law. Well, and, and a lot of times what's against the law in certain cities can be feeding the homeless. Yeah. You know, I, I have friends who have been arrested for doing just that. And Is that I think, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think... You know, there there's obviously a bigger uh, systemic debate at hand here, but I think to to imply that like the teachings of Jesus apply only to to personal and private aspects of our life yeah. and not public or political issues is to really flatten uh, the gospel of Jesus, the good news of the kingdom. And I think yeah. um, you know I had a professor once that talked about the difference between submitting to authority and obeying authority. You know, he mm-hmm. talked about this. Uh, this footage of Martin Luther King Jr. sitting at a restaurant that he was not permitted to sit at and he sat at and then he was arrested and he was walked to the prison and then he was released and he went back to the restaurant and sat down and then he was arrested. Like he's he followed what was at least at the time the law of the land by, you know, um, being arrested without putting up a fight. And then as soon as he was released, went back to do the thing again. It was like yeah. this this really beautiful, poetic, civil disobedience while still ultimately submitting to the authorities. So I, for me, it's a little different, though, when this guy's looking at 20 years big for, you know, kind of it looks like living out a lot of what Jesus says we're to do for the quote least of these. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a lot in the Bible that I think is crystal clear, but some of those teachings seem to be pretty on the nose. And uh, I don't know, I, I, for me, I, I really struggle with this. I struggle with the ways that we talk about, you know, the people that are, we, we make it very partisan very quickly mm-hmm. when we talk about someone that is uh, giving water to people who are dying of dehydration. Like yeah. to me, that feels like a sanctity of life issue. And regardless of where you land politically or theologically, someone's dying in your backyard. Yeah. Um, can we really in good conscience convict someone who's behaving like that? Yeah. And it, like you said, it becomes hard to, for people to take it off of the partisan kind of debate around immigration. But we'd love to know your thoughts on this. When is it okay and when is it not okay uh, to uh, to do what you believe Jesus is calling you to do and helping the least uh, and those who are most vulnerable? It's a hard topic. I'm sure one will get to many other Times. Well, coming up next, uh, one thing we enjoy doing is talking to pastors in the area. Uh, we're going to do that next, talking to Reverend 
uh, Jim Scudder. That is next on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. I got to be honest, when I first heard the start of that song, I was going to say, you finally got Nirvana in. And I went, wait a minute, it's DC Talk. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Notice I got them both right. Like, I, w- I moved from one to the other. <laughs> I got it. The fact that even for a moment. Just like the first, like, boom, I was like, okay. <laughs> the first bump. The first. <laughs> yeah, the f- yeah, the first bump is the most convincing of that song. I did see you were one of the people who was posting online that uh, DC Talk is about to reunite. Is that cur- is that correct? It, it is correct. We've been talking about it in your absence. You have. Thanks, like, thanks for listening to the show while you were gone. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't reach California. It doesn't. The podcast doesn't no, reach California. No, they no, do them differently. No, out there. they do it just something with they, the they do it signal or the. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. Uh, busted, I guess. But yes, DC ah, Talk. Okay. There you go. Uh, well. Taking a hard left turn here, uh, we came across an article that I found really disturbing and just thought we could talk about because I think it gets at a, uh, at a, at a, a difficult issue, but also one that I think we need to get our arms around and, and kind of get to the root cause. Uh, and so this study says this suicide rates among young Americans accelerates to the highest level since 2000 that a new study of national data on suicide rates among young americans reveals rates have hit their highest point since the year 2000 reported reuters there is a surge of suicides not just in adolescents but in specifically in adolescent males Hmm. previous research has talked about the rise in females our study shows both are at a much higher risk and and there's a graph in here of of death per a hundred thousand of teens, fifteen to twenty, of fifteen to nineteen, and it's it's really striking to see it spiking upwards. And and then the article is just a lot of data about the rise uh, in this. And here's the art. Here's where I want to jump us off. Here, it says researchers also failed to investigate the factors behind the suicide rate increases. So the only part point of the study was to document that there is an increase sure okay but it says researchers failed to investigate the factors behind the suicide rate increases the researchers wrote that future studies should examine possible contributing factors and attempt to develop prevention measures by understanding the causes for the decreases in suicides found in the late 1990s and now the increases uh going on now and that's what i want to tackle right now because uh, you and I, both former youth pastors, we both have kids. My kids are of this age, or at least my oldest. And so it's really disturbing to see this raise in suicide rates. So I guess first I'd ask you just, are you surprised by this? Or does it, you know, what does it do to your soul? And then let's begin to have a conversation about why do we think uh, in this land of prosperity, in this area that we live in, and all the things that kids can have now, why would there be a surge in something like suicide? I mean, to your first question, just simply based on what we're experiencing as a church community, I'm not surprised. Mm. I'm, I'm heartbroken. In your church community? Yeah, and, and in our neighboring communities uh, and our cities and neighborhoods as well. It, mm. it just seems like 
you know, we've been, we've both served in student ministry and this isn't by any stretch a new problem or nope. a new issue. Um, but to see that kind of spike actually is not only heartbreaking, it, it is also kind of confirming like, okay, this, this isn't just our experience. This actually is something that we're, exp- I mean, it is, I read somewhere else. It's the, it's the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. Overall. Yeah. Wow. I mean, out of everything, out of, out of diseases, out of illnesses, out of accidents, out of oh. alcoholism, all, all of it, the 10th leading cause. And I, I think, um, for me, like it's, it's something that just rattles the whole community. It's, yeah. it's like such a, um, I mean, and death of any kind does for sure. Uh, but there, there is something in particular about suicide that I think kind of strikes to the, just the core of humanity yep. and, whether that's young people, older people, it almost it almost is the same. Like it just has this really, really um, disturbing pit. And I think pastorally, part of the struggle for me is uh, how rarely I hear Christian leaders talk about it at all. And unfortunately, sometimes it's only talked about as a spiritual warfare. Yeah, and the, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of healthy dialogue from the church perspective about mental health about uh, therapy and counseling and medication. And I'm not saying that prayer doesn't need to be at the absolute forefront of all of that. But I think when we dismiss some of these other methods that I think can be really helpful, um, we just don't, we're not setting people up for success and we're not giving people handles to to talk about it. Well, Uh, one of the researchers said this, uh, Nadine Caslow, a professor of psychiatry (laughs) and behavioral sciences at Emory university and school of medicine uh, she wasn't involved in the study, but she was asked to talk about this surge in suicide rates. And she said this, like you just said, this is unfortunately not a surprise. And she went on to say, there have been a number of things that people have talked about lately. One is just sort of increasing rates of psychological pain or psychological distress of young people, more anxiety and more depression. Hmm. And I think that's for a number of of reasons. And and I guess it also goes back to what are those reasons? Like I got a teenager, right? Like I've got a teenager, right. love her to death. Talked to you the other day about how I just spent time with her in California and just had the best time with her. Uh, but knowing that she's going into these waters now and that I've got two more about to go in these waters, then you've got two that will eventually get into these waters. Yeah, right. Like we want, we not only want to protect them, but we want to help them navigate what's going on. And, and I just, I don't have a good handle on it. Maybe you do for what is causing greater psychological pain and psychological distress in young people today. Is it something as simple as the connectedness that we have and social media and all this stuff? Is it greater um, pressure to achieve and in school uh, is, is it greater awareness of the struggles of the world because we're more connected. So we see things going on or maybe it's just all of that. It's just a big stew and it's all of that. I I think it has to be all of that to some degree. Uh, I will say, again, you and I are not mental health experts no, at, all. at all. And I think that needs to be said over and over again. I think pastors need to do a better job of owning that, of recognizing their own pay grade. I think sometimes you get into, mm-hmm. into trouble when we try to counsel people that we have no business or no skill set or training to actually. And again, just anecdotally, if you or someone you know um, is in any way in a similar place, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. I would highly, highly encourage you to share that number with anyone that you think would need it. But the other thing that I think 
needs to be talked about, though, is that I, I've outright heard in some Christian circles that I've heard people talk about depression as a sin. Mm. And I think the more that we continue that narrative, particularly from pulpits and Bible studies, the more people feel the yes. need to hide their pain. And that's, I think, the heartache that we're finding more and more in a lot of these circumstances is that so-and-so had a, a whole world of pain and heartache and hopelessness that no one knew anything about. And, and so the Bible has all these stories of like sorrow and heartache and grief. And th- so when the Bible doesn't feel any need to hide those stories, maybe that means that we don't need to either, you know, mm, and, and, yeah. it, and it can't just be on, well, hey, if you're having a hard time, raise a hand. Like that perspective, I think, shows such a disconnect of what it's like to actually be caught in this spiral. Yes, that's part of it. Yes, if you have a need, please raise your hand. But I think we need to be more proactive than that. Than just saying like, well, hey, if you're drowning, let me know. If not, I'll assume you're okay. We need yeah. we need to be more proactive. I think about creating safe places for people to actually talk about their struggles. Yeah, and, and parents out there, we just need to know uh, and have it on our minds that that it's a hard um, uh, it's a hard culture for our kids to grow up in. Like, yeah. there's something going on, and we could be like, oh, back when I was a kid, we just did this. Well, it's a different time. Yeah. And so I think we need to be having conversations with our kids. But when we see them drowning or struggling, not to be like, well, our family doesn't do that. Right. right. But to instead uh, get the help you need. Be honest. Get get the conversation going. And yeah. so uh, it, a disturbing trend, one that we want to put in front of us and say as churches, as families, as Christians, we need to be at the forefront uh, of of helping uh, of, of helping of helping in this way. Well, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Coming up next, uh, NPR asks this question. What's going on in your child's brain when you read to them a story? We're going to discuss that next on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, As always, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can text us at 68683. That's 68683. Type in CG followed by your comment. You can also find old shows either online at 1160hope.com. Uh, or you can get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast off. That's still still saying it that way. Wherever it is you get your podcast. Get your podcast. What's a better way to say that? Wherever it is your podcasts are can be found. found. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds much more uh, Dickens of you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, podcast. Where are my podcasts? <laughs> Night and day. I long for the podcast. <laughs> oh, podcast. Hither, yes. forsooth. Ah, uh, speaking of Dickens and Shakespeare and all oh. others, see, see, well we're going to become radio professionals. Nah, I wouldn't go that far. NPR asks this question: What's going on in your child's brain when you read them a story? So your your kids are at the age where you're probably reading them lots of stories. Am I uh, am I correct about that? I mean, I'm trying. Yeah, you're at the front end of it. Yeah, Owen has about two minutes of patience. Nice. And then he he wants to move on to something. Does else. he have a favorite book yet? And by book, it's usually just because of the pictures. But is there a favorite, or just grab one off the shelf? Yeah, it's more grab one off the shelf, and then it's all right. Turn the TV back on. Or, <laughs> <laughs> these these pictures on the page don't move at all, and he just get, he seems to get annoyed. Where are they going? Uh, so you're get you're about to enter well into the age. Did you have this growing up? At least my kids. Uh, wow, now I'm going to forget the name of it. what was it? Goodbye, Good Night Moon. Oh yeah. 
That story's kind of creepy. <laughs> I used to read it oh, to my kids. A lot a little, of those stories are quite creepy. And I used to read it to my kids in a really creepy voice, and I'd be like, what am I doing? Good night, moon. <laughs> Good night to the man. <laughs> You're the reason they still have nightmares. Is that, for me, it was Harold and the Purple Crayon. I'll still read Harold oh. and the Purple I want someone to make a Harold and the Purple Crayon movie. I would watch that today. I don't know that I know the book. It's be- Oh, it's so beautiful, and it has so much beautiful metaphor in it, and it's... You should go home and read it. Okay. I have three copies. I'll bring you one. Bring me one. Autograph it. (laughs) Autograph it as Harold. So uh, this concept of reading, we... As your kids get a little bit older, uh, reading to them, we're always told reading to their kids is important. And NPR is basically asking, what actually happens in our brain? Why is it important? What's the reasoning that reading to our children is important? Uh, And so um, that's that's kind of what this is getting at. So I'm wondering if any of them stuck out to you. There was one specific that stuck out to me, wondering if in this article anything particular struck out stuck out to you yeah let me so i'll just read some of what's going on they they were conducting a study uh 27 different children around the age of four they went into an fmri machine and i don't know what the f stands for but um they're trying to measure the different learning centers of the brain that are activated based on different um different learning environments and so they said they called it the goldilocks effect so they said in the audio only condition which is quote too cold you know in terms of Goldilocks <laughs> language networks were activated, but there was less connectivity overall. There was more evidence. The children were straining to understand in the animation condition, quote, too hot. There was a lot of activity in the audio and visual perception networks, but mm. not a lot of connectivity among the various brain networks. The language network was working to keep up with the story. Uh, our interpretation was that the animation was doing all of the work for the child. They were mm. expending the most energy just figuring out what it means. The children's comprehension of the story was worst in this condition. The illustration condition was what they called just right. When children could see illustrations, language network activity dropped a bit compared to the audio condition. Instead of only paying attention to the words, the children's understanding of the story was scaffolded by having the images as clues. He goes on to say, give them a picture and they have a cookie to work with. With Ooh. animation, it's all dumped on them at once and they don't have anything to work with. Most importantly, in the illustrated book condition, researchers saw increased connectivity between and among all the networks they were looking at. Visual perception, imagery default mode, and language. Mm. So between like audio only and like a TV show, like books with images were firing the most uh, learning centers of the brain to actually create categories and language for better understanding what was going on, which I think is super interesting and something that maybe a lot of parents do instinctually, but to have data now kind of pointing towards it. uh, I just, I just find really interesting. Yeah. And I love what they say here later on. It says one interesting note is that because of the constraints of an MRI machine, which encloses and immobilizes your body, the story with illustrations condition wasn't actually as good as reading on mom or dad's lap. The emotional bonding and physical closeness were missing. So were the exchanges known as dialogic reading, where caregivers point out specific words or prompt children to show me the cat in the picture. That's a whole other layer of building uh, of building reading, the the researcher says. And so it, it's again, you used the word instinctual. It's like we know that it's good for our kids to sit on our laps and that bond that bonds us, that helps them. That, that helps them. It's saying here with their imagination, but also there's there's something unique that happens when a child sits on mom's lap or dad's lap, and you hold that that that, that book open. 
uh, even uh, and you read with them and you process with them. There is an emotional bonding that they're seeing in the brain uh, between child and parent. Man, that is enough for me to be like, start reading to your kids. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, the article is sort of going on to say that, like, we need to be mindful that when we read to our kids, like they're actually doing more work than meets the eye, right? They're, they're developing this muscle and they're developing this skill, which I, even with my two little ones, mm-hmm. like that's becoming increasingly clear. Like, Oh, I think more is going on than what you can articulate and what I can observe, which is both so fascinating and so terrifying. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I'm imagining like anecdotally, like I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to the day slash terrified of the day that my kid repeats something back to me and I have to ask, where did you learn that? Oh, you learned that from me. That's really interesting and scary. It's this idea that by showing them images and reading them stories. And like you were saying with the, with the physical bond of like sitting on their lap or holding hands, like all of that stuff contributes to Mm -hmm. the development of the brain. And I think conversely by not doing that, we actually stand to possibly stunt some of those developmental uh, patterns and connections and synapses in their brain, which again, I totally get like we, you know, we're, we've certainly had days where like, just turn, just turn on Daniel Tiger. Like we don't like it. We're just exhausted. Like I'm not saying don't do that, but uh, the more and more that we discover what's really happening in the neuroplasticity that's uh, encouraged when we actually read these stories with them. And uh, I don't know. I'm glad that people are conducting this kind of research because like I'm fully in this mode right now. Mm-hmm. And and when we see science that kind of affirms the significance of these like really, really sometimes easily overlooked components of how we like raise and care for our kids is like. It's weird to say it, but I find it kind of inspiring. Yeah. And it does raise the level of like, you know, we're not past the need to just spend time reading to your kids. Right. Like it's not enough to just hand them the iPad. Right. I mean, I remember those days, too, of like uh, I am counting the minutes until I can feel not guilty about letting you watch Elmo right now. So right, that I can right, just right. do something um, like those are totally it. But sometimes, you know, we run so hard and so fast that y- you can't. Uh, allow if you're a parent out there you can't allow the the pace of life to make you miss these important things like reading to your kids or if i can expand it right like throwing a ball with your kid outside right like these are um again man like i I talked about it the other day but uh not to get too sentimental but spending a week with my daughter who's 15 years old in in california this past week She's you could see her eating up the quality time really at the age of 15. When everyone's awesome. like, oh, they don't want to spend time with their parents anymore. Right. Like it was just like palpable. That's like, I awesome. Could feel it. That's awesome. And uh, yeah. So even at a young age, be reading to your kids. It makes a difference in their brain. It will also make a difference in your relationship with them. And also read Harold and the Purple Crayon. <laughs> Harold, I'm going to go home and read it tonight. I <laughs> can't wait. Uh, well, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. For, alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Stay with us. The first hour is done here on a good Thursday afternoon on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're excited to have you joining us on this Thursday afternoon. 
You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That is The Common Good Radio Show. I really enjoyed I kind of followed a lot of when I was away last week going on what was going on in the conversation through Facebook. Like, people are actually talking on there. Yeah, they're pretty active. And so we would uh, love for you to continue that. Uh, I've learned that you have a lot more opinionated friends than I do on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Mine are always like, like, yes, this is like every time you post something that's like, um, people don't know Ian does a lot of our posting, but uh, when you post a funny story or like, hey, what are your thoughts on this? If it's like really lighthearted and funny, I just see my people are jumping in. <laughs> yeah, that's great. When it's like deep or, or like a really hard topic, I'm like, where are my friends at? <laughs> Why do you think that is, Brian? Uh, I know we're not going to go into that. See, that oh, that could be, that'd be such a fun conversation, though. You're going to psychoanalyze me. I think it's because I probably when I'm on Facebook and I see the hard conversations, I'm like, nope. nope. <laughs> <laughs> but when it's like, what do you like more, pizza or this? I'm in. <laughs> well, that's what's pretty interesting, too, because I like both sides of that spectrum, too. I'll post really serious, you difficult do. stuff, but I also am like, look at this goofy article about roller skates. Like, I, you know, I I really do enjoy both ends of uh, of that spectrum. Yeah, you will do funny stuff. And so, uh, yeah, join us on Facebook. Join us in the conversation there at the Common Good Radio Show. You can also listen to old shows online at 1160hope.com. Uh, our podcast is The Common Good. You can find that wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Uh, you can also text us 68683. That's 68683. And we read those. And every now and then someone will text us something or Facebook us something. And we'll go, well, that's something we should talk about. So yeah, right. uh, it's not just, you know, you say something to us and we go, well, whatever. But oftentimes stuff that we will discuss on the show will come straight from those sources. And so. Uh, we would love to have you uh, interact with us in that way. Well, you've probably seen this on the news as of late. Uh, let me read the headlines from the ChristianHeadlines.com. The cross does not offend the Constitution. Supreme Court upholds World War I memorial. So let me read some of this and then would get to would love to get uh, your reaction. The U.S. Supreme Court issued a landmark religious liberty decision. I believe it was last Thursday. And let's stand a 94-year-old cross-shaped war memorial that was at the center of a dispute between an atheist group and a veterans organization. The court, in a 7-2 decision, ruled the 40-foot uh, Bladensburger, Bladensburger World War I Veterans Memorial, often called the Peace Cross, right. does not vi- violate the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. It sits on a public property in Bladensburg, uh, Maryland, and was completed in 1925. The justices did not overturn the so-called Lemon Test as requested by some religious liberty groups, but did issue a new set of principles that could protect other historic religious theme monuments. Uh, Justice Samuel Alito wrote for the majority. He wrote, the cross is undoubtedly a Christian symbol, but that fact should not blind us to everything else that the Bladenburg cross has come to represent. For some, the monument is a symbolic resting place for ancestors who never returned home. For others, it is a place for the community to gather and honor all veterans and their sacrifices for our nations. For others, still, it is a historical landmark. Tearing down the cross, Alito wrote, could be viewed as an unconstitutional hostile act towards religion and so he goes on and on and the american humanist association which is an atheist group was the one who sued to have the cross removed it lost in court uh but won at the fourth circuit court of appeals uh and and so it's kind of going back and forth you can see kind of what's going on here it was justice ruth bader ginsburg and sonia sotomayor 
who dissented. So as you read this, as you kind of take this in, uh, just curious, not just about this court case, but there's going to be more like this coming forward. Uh, uh, Your thoughts on this? So I I wanted to look at a a different article other than Christian headlines. Just to are you are you worried Christian headlines will be a little uh, uh, slanted? I'm not worried. Everyone's slanted. So that's that's unavoidable. Regardless of who's writing it, they're slanted. We're slanted. Like that's you know I don't think you can get away from that. But uh, this art I won't even tell you who it's from. So you just have to to listen to what I'm saying. Uh, So Fred Edwards and Stephen Lowe, with the support of the American Humanist Association, were behind this challenge and. Lowe told a news reporter, as a memorial to all veterans, this seems to only represent the Christian veterans. And then Edwards said, I'm not offended by the cross per se. What offends me is that it's on government land promoting government endorsement of religion, and it's not my religion. But even if it were my religion, I would not want my tax dollars used to endorse it. Which he's speaking a little bit more of like some of the upkeep. So it's it's continued to be maintained uh, through tax dollars, which is an interesting debate, to be honest. Like you and I are, uh, you know, inextricably biased because we're not only both Christians, we're both pastors. Um, it's an almost centuries-old memorial. So, like, part of part of me is a little curious why this is just now kind of yeah. gaining all yeah. this steam. It looks like 2012 and then 2017, and I. So that to me, I'm. I would really be. I'd be curious to know your thoughts. Like, why after. Almost a hundred years, it's becoming a big thing now. Where you know somebody thirty years ago could have been just as frustrated, and nobody brought it to any sort of court of appeals. I feel like the the um, the current of culture uh, makes it probably more um, understandable for somebody to raise uh, this kind of objection. Makes it more acceptable. Uh, probably, like you said, forty years ago. Uh, if you were like, hey, I think we need to take that cross down. I think that most people uh, would have kind of lit you up for that. And, uh, you know, for me, as I as I read this article and I read about this decision, uh, for me, it's I, I tend to agree with Justice Alito there going like it's not a religious symbol because uh, only a religious symbol after all these years. Sure. It's a monument for some. It's a resting place for others. Uh now, if they were doing it today and building a memorial to X, Y, or Z, and they wanted to make the cross the central thing, I think there was there would be an interesting debate to be had, and, and I think that's what some of these humanist groups, atheist groups, are getting towards. I think even they can probably see, okay, it's built in 1925; it's got a history to it. Right? Like we're probably going to lose this. Uh, I think they're probably trying to lay down a couple fights here in order for when the new memorial comes out and it's centered on a cross. Hmm. uh, Is that going to be okay? And I think that's going to make for an interesting debate because uh, let's be honest, through our history, the cross is often at the center of all memorials, right? Uh, Whether it be a cemetery, uh, think of Arlington National Cemetery and the moving pictures of just all those crosses or whether it be a monument uh, and I do think that that the days of the cross being at the center of new monuments and new remembrances may be coming to an end. I'm guessing on public grounds. Yeah, so, what would you what would you think about a uh, a public, governmentally maintained monument that had Krishna at the top? Yeah, and that's like, like for you. Would that be in Downers Grove? Let's say, yeah. yeah, I would have a trouble with it, and that's why I probably tend to surprise people when I say that public memorials probably increasing increasingly into the future 
probably don't need overtly religious symbols on them, whether they be a cross or or a symbol from another religion. Like, I think it goes when you and I talk about schools and this, it's the same thing that I feel like because I don't. Just because Christianity is the majority doesn't mean it should always win. It doesn't mean it should always be our symbols that are held up. Uh, and so to be honest with you, like uh, if the choice is for another religious symbol versus no religious symbol at all, I would probably choose no religious symbol at all. And therefore, mm. I think as Christians, we need to afford the same um, the same respect to people who don't follow our religion. And, and that might sound surprising coming from a pastor, but sometimes I get frustrated when it's like, no, we need to have the cross. Wait, you want to put that up? <laughs> like, All right. And that comes across as pretty disingenuous. Yeah. And I, th- man, the, we, I, we probably spend a whole other segment about, you know, sort of the, the, the passive displays of a cross memorial. Mm. Like some are saying this, this lands on the permissible side. It's not attempting to compel belief or coerce any sort of religious support. But uh, you know, on the other side, I'm hearing people say things like what, it kind of stigmatizes and marginalizes citizens who exercise their constitutional right to believe or practice a, a different religion or endorse a different religion or no religion at yep. all. Like, it, is there is there a space for disagreement there? Again, when it comes to this particular monument, a hundred year old monument, right? Like, part of me feels like that's maybe not the hill to die on, but it is, I think, an important discussion to probably continue to have absolutely at a political level, but also a church level. Absolutely, like I am increasingly uncomfortable, and we'll have this again. We've had this conversation with the this whole movement to tear down monuments and tear down statues, not across the board. There are times to do that, but there seems to be the new wave. But I do think thinking about memorials going forward and things we memorialize going forward. I think we have to be willing to have the nuanced conversation and think about it, not just what's it do for my religion and this, but, but across the board and how it makes us feel. Well, uh, that is not a conversation that is uh, going to go away. Well, coming up next here on the Common Good, we're going to talk about friendships and particularly particularly why you need a network of low stakes casual friendships. That's what's coming up next here on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're glad to have you joining us today. Uh, you can find old shows wherever it is you get our podcasts or online at 1160hope.com. You can text us 68683 or on Facebook. You can uh, continue the conversation with us there uh, at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can find us there on Facebook. Uh, also, uh, our our producer has been putting lots of stuff on Twitter these days. So uh, I believe, what is our Twitter handle? AM1160hope or... 1160 hope 1160 hope I should learn that and we should get one for the show <laughs> are you just are you just telling our audience that like hey we should have one yeah <laughs> we should I want a Twitter <laughs> handle. I feel like why is he yelling yeah so you can hashtag the common good and you'll find uh, a lot of the old show segments there as well New York Times uh, and I was somewhat surprised to find an article like this at the New York Times usually the article we're about to do here is off of a blog or or Christianity Today, or something like that. But uh, at the New York Times, uh, the article is this, why you need a network of low-stakes casual friendships. Why you need a network of low-stakes casual friendships. It begins this, when I was laid off in 2015, I told people about it the way any good millennial would, by tweeting it. 
My hope was that someone on the fringes of my social sphere would point me to potential opportunities. And then it goes from there. So I, uh, how do you think this article is, first of all, defining low stakes, casual friendships and why are those important? Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, it's, they're not—they're not talking like friends with benefits or anything. No, like that. no, no, that's no. not the kind of. So they uh, there's a 2014 study that found the more weak ties a person has, parenthetically, neighbors, a barista at the neighborhood coffee shop, or fellow members in a spin class, the happier they feel. Maintaining this network of acquaintances also contributes to one sense of belonging to a community, which I think is actually pretty compelling because Absolutely. a lot of times we only hear the perspective of you got to really. Deep in relationships, you got to really focus on the few, which certainly has its value. This is an area where my wife is just way better than I am. She's really good at saying, nope, these four people, those are my people. Those are my lifers. And she just goes really deep with them. The The other thing that sort of surprised me in our, uh, an angle I didn't really plan on taking is that a number of times it says, uh, however, by cultivating low level friendships at places we frequent like church or PTA meetings, mm. we're able to create valuable mini networks. Yeah. Which you can imagine that sort of was a a little bit of a red flag for me. Like, holy cow, probably three or four times this article, which, again, is, you know, not a uh, explicitly Christian article at right. all, but continues to refer to church relationships as these like low level yeah. casual friendships, which at some level I get what they're saying at the other level, though. To speak of church relationships and PTA relationships as synonymous, yeah. to me, kind of shows a little bit of an issue with regards to how church relationships are seen. It's yeah. you know we've talked about this before. Both of our churches have the word community in it, right? So we assume like, oh, because I sat in a room with a bunch of other people at the same time each week, that's community. Yes, and then you look at the Bible, you're like, well, that's not actually what it's talking about at all. There, the communitas is much much deeper than that. So, you know, that's sort of a, maybe a subset point to this article. I think there is a lot of value to maintaining some of these casual networks. And, you know, there's another article they reference. We talk about from 25 on, you just sort of see this, like this slow decline, this dwindling of our, our friend networks. And I don't know if, you know, you're 41, 42. Like, do you, I look 41 though. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You don't look a day over 41, Brian from, would you say that's about right? 25 was about where you started to see this dwindle. A hundred percent. Why? Why do you, is is it kids? Is it a job? Is it all that? You hit the top two for me. And I think from talking to people who are my friends, I think it's the same. You just get, I, how many day, how many hours do you have in the week? And now your kids, you, your life becomes centered around your kids. And I don't mean that in a, in a weird way. I mean right. it in like, there's only so many hours to chop up. And once you decide, once you're chopping it up between work and kids, those pressures really start to eliminate the, the ability to have just casual friends and like, yeah, yeah, let's hang out. Like right now, if I'm just hanging out, I'm usually hanging out with my wife and or my children. So yeah, no, it becomes a struggle. Yeah, I think you're right. And I, the thing that I like about this article though, is it does give some, suggestions for how can we cultivate like meaningful uh, low risk friendships, which you don't typically see those two mentioned in the same sentence, meaningful right. and low risk. So here are just a couple, uh, give yourself permission to talk to a familiar face and talk about it being okay. Just to talk to people that, you know, maybe if you don't recognize them, just yep. give yourself permission to actually engage with conversation with the barista or the cashier, uh, shift your attitude since research suggests Talking with strangers is a pleasant experience and leaves us feeling fulfilled. There's no reason to groan when your Uber driver strikes up a conversation by altering Mm. your expectations around the level of enjoyment. These conversations provide both for you and the other person. You're more likely to engage in the first place. 
uh, mirror an expert's behavior. When she was growing up, Dr. Sandstrom, who's kind of the central voice in this article, watched her father interact with virtually everyone he encountered. As an adult, she adopted some of his conversational habits when speaking with acquaintances. Do you have friends who seem to strike up a conversation with everyone at the bar? Observe them. How do they initiate the exchange? What questions do they ask? What topics do they avoid? And then she says, uh, make the conversations meaningful. If your goal is for these low stakes friendships to evolve into something more significant, it's important for these exchanges to be high quality. So that like low stakes, high quality juxtaposition is super interesting. Uh, Dr. Hall says when we have that sense of connection with somebody, it accelerates the process by which we try to take action to create a deeper friendship. Interesting. Which I think is super interesting because a lot of our friendships we either like had as kids or it was sort of like, you know, often kind of like microwaved in a college college yep. experience. You're yep. like, oh, we're living together. We're living. And then you enter adulthood. Like we, we wrestle with this question as a church all the time. All of our young adults struggle to make yep. meaningful connections because yep. the, their entire life they've had groups and clubs and classes. And then all of a sudden they're 23 and they're like, I just work now. How, yeah. How do I make <laughs> friends again? Yeah. How do you walk up to someone and say, can you be my friend? Yes. Like it's, yeah. it can feel really foreign, like a muscle that you've never used before. And I think, I think these are some really good tips. They're, they, those are good. And, um, you know, two things struck me, the church one that you were talking about. I yeah. am always amazed. Like, I like to think that we're like a family church cause we're not, you know, a huge church. And so, but just the fact that we have two services and stuff, I'm amazed by how many people that I'm assuming know each other well in our church because they've been around each other for a year, two years. And I, I'll be with them in the lobby and they introduce themselves to each other. Oh, really? And you're like, oh, my gosh. Like, really? You guys mm. don't know? And like, what are we doing? Like, what are we doing? Secondly thing, I would say this, and this is kind of inside baseball. I would say low stakes casual friendships are by and large really hard for pastors. Oh, interesting. Why do you think that is? Because I think we are so often in our churches, like mm. all, like that's our setting. We're just in our churches for the vast majority of our friendships and our mm. connections. And you can't have low state casual friendships as the pastor in your church. You can have friendships. It's really hard to have just casual. I work really hard and fight against it. And I'm beginning to be like, yeah, it is really hard. The way people told me when I was younger, it's hard. It's going to be difficult. So I think for people who are in the profession of you and I, I think there's Hmm. one of the takeaways from an article like this is you got to find the places you can find these kind of relationships. It's probably not going to be in your church. Well, this is something actually that I saw my father model really beautifully. Like he was always asking waiters and waitresses, like, how's your day going? Mm. What's new in your world? Like I, I saw this lived out. Like I honestly, I think I probably absorbed some of that before I even realized it was happening. Cause the other thing that I think is important to note is that when you're willing to engage at this level, even with people you may never see again, it actually builds empathy. Like it allows you to see the world around you with a greater level of empathy and compassion for the world around you. Because sometimes our waitress yes. will tell you, I'm actually really struggling. I'm a single mom right now. Or you yes. talk to the cashier, like it's been a really long, I'm working the fifth double in a row. You know what I mean? Like those types of brief interactions actually, I think can grow our heart and empathy for people that we, even if we never see them again, I think that's important for all of us to grow in. That's a good point, man. That's a good point. Well, uh, Think about your friendships. Think about your connections and where they are. We think that is important. You can find that article at the New York Times. Well, coming up next, uh, an interesting article, an interesting blog post about the ordinary church. We always talk about churches or people being extraordinary. Where is the value in just a church being ordinary? That's coming up next on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. 
Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can find old shows, uh, whether you podcast or get them online at 1160hope.com. And as always, you can text us at 68683. That's 68683. Type in CG, followed uh, by your comment. And uh Brian Zand, right? So he wrote the foreword to a book called Ordinary Church. And I think it it got both of our eyes. Like when we saw this, we're like, okay, uh, I'm intrigued. Like that's always the deal of a headline, right? Like intrigue me enough to read it. (laughs) And uh, then we came to find out it's the foreword he wrote for a book called Ordinary Church uh, that a friend of his wrote. And uh, really intriguing because I think the concept of this church of this book is the author of Ordinary Church wrote it. His name is Joseph Beach. Uh, he's a longtime pastor, and he wrote it to those who are just kind of done with the church, yeah. people who didn't want don't want to be a part of the church anymore. And it really delves in a lot, at least this forward to the book does about the need about how in American evangelicalism we have like individualized the faith, right, and why that is so counter to what uh, the Bible speaks of, what Jesus speaks of, what the early church fathers speak of, and how a lot of people who are done with church, they're kind of rejecting that individual nature of it. Wondering uh, your thoughts just on his writing, but also if if that's something you've seen in the people who are struggling with church or just church in general. Yeah, I I think this uh, paragraph here is pretty compelling. He says, what was Jesus's message? What was his mission? Quite simply, it was to inaugurate and establish the kingdom of God. Everything Jesus ever did, his preaching, his parables, his miracles, his table practice of radical hospitality, was an announcement and enactment of the kingdom of God. Jesus called upon those who heard his gospel announcement of the arrival of the kingdom of God to believe the message, rethink their lives, and to be baptized as a public testimony that they now belong to this new way of being the people of God, which I heard Scott McKnight say recently in a podcast. He said something, he was sort of offhanded, but he was talking about how uh, it's unfortunate that Jesus didn't live long, long enough to really see the gospel come to fruition or something like that. Wow. Speaking that like we speak solely of death, burial, resurrection, Direction. Yep. So, like, if if that's what the good news is, then what was Jesus talking about? Because mm. he's uttering all kinds of good news all the time, well before he's ever arrested. Ah, interesting. interesting. So he's kind of he's really kind of challenging some of the paradigms and some of the things that we do tend to sort of take for granted. Maybe mm. in like you know how, how often do people are like, oh, just preach the gospel, and then you ask them like, what does that mean? Yeah, like, I have no idea, but you need to be doing it. But you got to do preacher, it, better. right? Like, I think that's. Uh, I was just talking with a our researcher who. Uh, preferred not to be named, but he was kind of talking about a little bit about some of the challenge of the language that we think we know what it is that we're talking mm. about and how we can sometimes kind of talk circles around it. And I think this book seems like a really great opportunity to, to kind of pull back some of the layers of the language that gets in the way sometimes mm-hmm. often churches wielding words uh, inappropriately or that don't actually tied truly to biblical text, and I think uh, I think it's, it sounds like a really compelling journey. It really does. Zand writes in the forward here, writes, the Christian life is not a solo project, and it was never intended to be. Christianity is not primarily a set of privately held beliefs, but a shared life. Yeah. Nevertheless, the rise of Christianity as private pietism has obscured this truth. And then listen to this example. I, did, I don't remember this movie, but much of the ethos in American Protestantism is sadly captured in the film The Apostle, mm. when the preacher, played by Robert Duvall, baptizes him Self. Yeah, right. An act of privatized spirituality that would have been utterly absurd in apostolic Christianity, but is an accurate icon of Americanized Christianity. That is 
That's powerful, man. Like, and, and you don't even realize that we've kind of this phrase privatized pietism, that we've made it about your individual faith until somebody kind of takes the curtain back and, and like points it out. And then you start going, yeah, it is. It's all about accepting Jesus into my heart. And I'm not joining a community, but I'm more, it's like, you know, it's me and Jesus. And, uh, but the fact that we've been taught that from a very young age, oftentimes you, you don't even see the dangers of it. Yeah, I totally. I mean, I think it's interesting, too, how when you really start to delve into history, like he talks a little bit. I mean, Zahn does this a lot in his writing and his preaching where he is certainly one who speaks truth to power and is, does not shy away from talking about some of the uh, deficiencies, even the toxicity of the yeah. church. So, like, he's by no means saying, hey, uh, we've misidentified and we privatized. He's also saying, like. People have been right to leave, too. Oh, like, yeah. There are people that have walked away because of what they saw, and it was legitimately <laughs> exploitative or abusive. Like, he he owns that, and he's been consistent in that regard for yeah. a long time. But I think uh might have been Chesterton who said something like— So he's a good guest. Go yeah, good guest. <laughs> he said something like, six times the church went to the dogs, and every time it was the dogs that died. Or something like that. He's like sort sort of his way of saying, "Hey, if you look back in history, there's been plenty of times where yeah. the the church has really taken a deep dive and lost its vision and lost its identity. Uh, but Christ prevails. It is still His bride, and He uh, and Zond even goes on to use the language of divorce. Christ won't divorce Ooh. Himself from His bride, and so that can be both convicting, but also really hopeful. That you know, when you and I, a lot of our show is stepping back, looking at the big C church and wondering what is going on here? Like yes. what is happening and how can we be a part of it? And, and also maybe, you know, rekindling some gratitude that like, even when the bottom is dropping out in some of our church communities, that, that God is still faithful yeah. and uh, that the church is his plan. A. there is no plan B that is the hope mm-hmm. of the world. I think that is so hard to remember sometimes in this really tumultuous climate, especially in Chicagoland. Uh, but like what an important call to the people who are still faithfully week in and week out, still breaking bread, still coming to the table, still worshiping, still proclaiming, still repenting, still confessing, like they're doing it. And you know, many of which are doing without any fanfare, without any fog machines, without any late, you know what I mean? Like it's just for him to praise that through this forward, I think is is really powerful. So how do you think spinning this forward? We, neither of us want uh, these types of churches that he is, um, that he is describing here. So how do you get, uh, how do you grow a community that looks like this, where it is like we're in this together and we're part of something bigger and we genuinely are a community as opposed to uh, a collection of private Christian, individualistic Christians who are doing their things. Like I amen all of this. And yet, yet it's really hard to grow a culture that looks like this. So just, you know, what, what are some thoughts you have as to how do we fight against this? Mm, I think the first has to begin with the humbling recognition that we can't do it. Mm. Like it isn't for you and I, we're not going to preach our way into health or preach our way into a different kind of church community. The Holy Spirit will like, yeah. I think that remembering that first and foremost is actually d- very difficult sometimes when you're in leadership because you you run right to how can I do this? Or yep. How can I steer the yep. ship? And we certainly are called the steward our positions well, but uh, you know, the Holy Spirit changes hearts. We don't. I think the other thing is like what we celebrate and what we value. Like it's one thing to stand in a pulpit and say, we care about these things, but people pay attention to what's really celebrated, mm-hmm. what we really high five about. And you know, it's kitschy, but like I'll often say Sunday is the push, not the point. Mm-hmm. And I have to say it enough that people start to believe it. Yeah. You know, because if you say that's the push, not the point, this is the, the battleship, not the cruise liner. 
that's like a fine sermon sentiment, but until people actually see you putting time and energy and resources yeah. towards the stuff that you say you do value, like what Zahn's saying here with, with some of these ordinary church practices, uh, we got to model it. I, I, think, I think it's mm. kind of classic, put your money where your mouth is, put your time where your mouth is. We, it's not enough just to sermonize about it, but to actually to take courageous steps toward it. And part, the, part of the reason I think it's so courageous is because it is very countercultural. Yeah. I think it's very easy to develop a Sunday show mentality because yeah. you can control that. I can. T- I know. I know how long everything's going to last. I know everything's how it's transitioning. I think there's a lot of beauty in that. But to really ask and invite the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. to like, you know, wreck shop among us is also inviting a lack of control, yes. and that's very, very uh, scary for a lot of us. It is. It's a good. It's a good call because oftentimes you're right. We do say, okay, what is the strategy to attack this now? Right. What Which can I'm, I'm we for do? Strategy. Absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, jumping there first and. Uh, Real fast question. How would somebody out there uh, be able to diagnose that, you know what, they are, they're falling into this trap of what he talks about here? What, what are some markers you would say that says, yeah, I'm probably missing it and I'm kind of bought into this kind of personal pietism, individualism that, that he's talking about? Yeah, I mean, a good place to start is the fruit of the spirit. Mm-hmm. Are, you, are you growing in those things? You know, you, you can know a lot about Jesus and not be growing in kindness yeah. or gentleness at all. And these are things that Often we've talked about this in previous segments. Those are like soft skills that often get diminished to, uh, you know, I think we, in some ways, unfortunately too highly elevate articulation or charisma, Mm. which uh, I think are valuable, but uh, to really ask yourself the tough question, like I'm actually looking more and more like Jesus. Do I actually care about the people that I gather with? And if the answer is no to those, you might have some digging to do. And it's it's not a, you know, it's not a silver bullet, but it, they are worth asking. Like, am I actually following Jesus or am I just learning about him? Like is, are things and practices is my heart, is my will actually beginning to change and transform because that's the promise we're given. And so if you're saying, man, I keep, I keep learning about Jesus, but, but my heart gets colder and colder. And I'm meaner and meaner. Yes. You're like, well, then maybe maybe it's time to actually become a disciple and mm-hmm. not just not just a student. You Ooh. know, maybe it's actually time to like be covered in the dust of your rabbi and start following. You know, oh man, bringing fire today, <laughs> bringing fire. No brimstone, no brimstone. That's good stuff. I'd encourage you to check out the book. Uh, it's called Ordinary Church. And uh, it looks, if the forward is, is any indication, then it's a good book worth picking up well we always end the show the same way and this thursday it's going to be that we're, we're not going to change so we're going to land this plane and uh with some crazy stuff we found on the internet that's what's coming up next on the common good am 1160 hope for your life here's some weird stuff we found on the internet <clears throat> here's some more weird stuff we found on the web Welcome back to The Common Good. I am 1160. Hope for your life. This is the time of the show where we end with just lunacy. We like to dig into some hard topics during the our two hours together, other more lighthearted topics. But when we're ending the show, we like to just let it go off the rails. And so this is our disclaimer. Keith Conrad, our executive uh, producer, has found... Uh, just some crazy stories on the internet. We will laugh with you. We will be appalled with you because we've not read them. When yet you hear them, this is the first time we've read them. That's what makes them fun. That's what makes them dangerous. Yeah, right. No kidding. So why don't you go first? Why don't I go first? Oh, Minnesota cat survives thirty-five minute washing machine cycle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already terrified for whatever the sound effect is going to be. A yeah. Minnesota woman said her pet cat is down one of his nine lives after taking a 35-minute ride in the washing machine with a load of laundry. Stephanie Carol Kirchhoff said 
She checked on her laundry at the end of a 35-minute cycle at her home in Maplewood and spotted a paw belonging to her one-year-old cat, Felix, sticking out from among the wet clothes. I've been in shock the last few days, Carol told CNN. I mean, this is going to haunt me for the rest of my life. Yep. Exactly. This is going to go on for a while, isn't it? Oh, oh, good. We're done. Uh, next one, Michigan. Oh, America's high five. America's high five. <laughs> uh, lottery winner must split his winnings with ex-wife. Court says. <laughs> a suburban Detroit man who is in the middle of a divorce when he won more than thirty million dollars must share the lottery windfall with his ex-wife. She's like, nope, I'm not going to sign. <laughs> The Michigan appeals court says a marriage isn't over until it's over. Oh, gosh. It means Mary Beth Zalasco can keep $15 million awarded by an arbitrator, although she and Rich Zalasco had been separated for two years when he bought the Mega Millions ticket in 2013. No kidding. Their divorce wasn't final until 2018. In a court filing, an attorney for Rich Zalasco said Rich was lucky. Uh, but it was his luck, not Mary's, that produced the lottery winnings. But arbitrator John Mills said the ticket was marital property. The couple had agreed to have Mills make certain decisions during the divorce case. On my deathbed, my final wish is to have my ex-wives rush to my side so I can use my dying breath to tell them both to go to hell one last time. <laughs> oh, my oh, gosh. We, are we allowed to do that? I, we did not choose that. He, the, that you should see oh. the astonishment in our eyes. Oh, boy. I was just going to make a joke about his name being Rich and how he's just a little bit less... Ri- okay, that's or that scam. her name is Mary and they are no longer. Oh gosh, married. I totally missed that one. Jeez, so many other directions that soundbite could have gone. Get him off the soundbite. Oh well, that's gonna live forever in the podcast. Yep. All right, in Japan, rogue slug blamed for Japanese <laughs> railway chaos. <laughs> a, po- a power cut that disrupted rail traffic on Japanese island last month was caused by a slug. Officials say. More than 12,000 people's journeys were affected when nearly 30 trains on Kyushu uh, shuddered to a halt because of the slimy intruder's actions. Its, electri- its electrocuted remains were all oh, no. Oh, no. Were lodged inside equipment next to the tracks, Japan Railway say. The incident in Japan has echoes of a shutdown caused by a weasel at Europe's large had- Hadron Collider in 2016. What's it called? Once again. This is a weird one, man. <laughs> Montana. Bear enters Montana home, settles in for nap in closet. Oh, gosh, the picture is terrifying. Authorities say a black bear somehow locked itself inside a Montana home and then nestled into a closet onto a closet shelf that wasn't too hard, wasn't too soft, but was just right <laughs> for a nap. We were talking about Goldilocks earlier. That's yep. perfect. Sheriff's officials say in a Facebook post that deputies responded at 545 a.m. to a call that a bear opened and somehow locked the deadbolt once inside. They what? say the bear began ripping the room apart, clearly, before climbing <laughs> up the closet for a nap. Hey, boo-boo, let's see what we got in this picnic basket. Okay, let's end with California, oh, no. since uh, I was just there. you were just there in this story. Oh, this is your story. This was your first account, Big Rat. Falls from ceiling at Buffalo Wild Wings, lands on menu. Yes. You took this photo, right? This, this <laughs> would make anyone photo. lose their appetite. <laughs> Customers dining at a Buffalo Wild Wings restaurant in Westchester area of Los Angeles got a big 
Very surprised when a large live rat fell from the ceiling onto the table. Alicia Norman, who I'm going to add is probably not traumatized, was getting ready to order when she uh, says she heard something crawling around above her. Moments later, the rat came falling down, quote, like a Mack truck landing on top of a menu at the table next to her. Norman, who was there on vacation from Texas, tells Fox 35 everyone in the restaurant was in shock. Check, please. (laughs) Well, that's the thing here. I'm reading further down being like, did they leave? And it says as unappetizing as it was, Norman says she isn't mad. And the manager comped her and fellow diners meals. That seems to imply they stayed in a. I I mean, I'm not going to lie. If they offered to comp my meals, I'd say 100 percent of the time. (laughs) 100%. I would be like, white more wings, please. What, what if it was at your table, though? You'd still stay? I would switch tables. Uh, <laughs> I'd be like, can I move to that uh, table over there? You're a true renaissance man. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, even I have limits. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us today. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. This has been The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.